0: Um, you were going to let me give IWS. Ooh, I almost <laughs> forgot.
1: Okay, I'm going to cut that out. I'm going to cut that out, and if you're hearing okay. this right now, I didn't cut it out, and message me, and I'll know. Okay. Welcome to the Respond Worship Podcast. We are an auditive extension of the Respond Worship Retreat, where we inspire worship ministries for greater effectiveness, instruct teams in worship skills, and ignite a community of worship teams. My name is Ryan. I have been your host for like the past, I don't know, 10 episodes or so. And it's been me and Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is uh, going to be stepping back from his hosting responsibilities. So it'll be me and a guest, sometimes a respond worship person, sometimes somebody who's smart, uh, sometimes both. <laughs> anyway, uh, but today I am joined by Danelle Franklin, Dr. Franklin.
0: I Hello. Hi. <laughs> <Why?
1: laughs> hey, I'm really excited to have you here with us. Uh, I'm not going to introduce you totally, but I'll just say this up front. Danelle was the professor for like nine or so, eight or nine of my 12 classes in my master's degree. Um, about so, right, yeah. yeah. So I have a degree in whatever Danelle thinks about subjects. Um, that's my biggest qualification to date. So uh, <laughs> Danelle, why don't you that's tell a, that's
0: us? a wordy thing to know, actually. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Okay. Um, I am a graduate of Lincoln Christian College and I have, I had a degree there in piano music. Um, when I started calling, uh, worship was sort of peripheral to the music degree. It was much more Mm -hmm. of a music, you know, performance driven degree program. So I'm from Illinois and grew up in Southern Illinois, 1979, I moved to Dallas and I taught at Dallas Christian college for 14 years in the area of music. And I directed choirs. And, um, while I was there, I earned a master's degree in church music at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth again with a performance um, degree in piano. And while I was there in Dallas, I started becoming more and more interested in worship as a discipline of theology, not as a discipline of music. And um, that really started to turn things for me. So when I left there in 1993 and went to Ozark Christian College, um, where I taught Corey Scott piano lessons, yeah. Um. Uh, which comes out all the time, I'm sure. Yes. Um, I met Robert Weber while I was there. He came to do a conference there. And maybe you're familiar with Dr. Weber. He's written many famous books about worship. Um, he was a phenomenal gifted leader, speaker, teacher, and just happened to hear that he was going to start a doctoral program in worship. And I thought, I want to be in that. So when later I found out that he did, I joined that program and received a doctorate of worship studies from the Institute for Worship Studies. So I was at Ozark for nine and one half years. And then I came to Lincoln, Illinois, and started this worship program in the seminary here. So it was a master's program. And I taught here for about approximately 18 years. And Ryan was one of my last graduates and one of the few graduates to receive the Master of Arts in Formative Worship, which was a program that I put together to help emphasize the relationship between transformation and worship. So what was that degree before? It was a Master of Arts with a worship emphasis.
1: Okay. Yeah. I, when I signed up for the degree, it was me and a guy named Aaron Hayes who never actually went up to do it but we both visited at the same time and the picture danelle painted for me is that uh, if you've ever seen the titanic i am kate winslet on the door floating away right at the end i'm the last person off the boat <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so i made it <laughs> i got the degree That's true, i'm floating away
0: in your little you know, your little yeah. cap and your little gown—it yeah. really happened. So. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Unfortunately, Elsa, you did away with most of the degrees like that, uh, and so
1: yeah, they've made some. They've made some seismic shifts. Yeah, in uh, financial issues. Still, so anyway. accredited, still teaching, but um, yeah. they're they're cutting back a little bit. Um, but yeah. you not only taught at Lincoln and at Ozark, you teach at one other place.
0: Yes, I teach at at the Institute for the Robert E. Weber Institute for Worship Studies, named after our founder. And I graduated from there in 2004. And then in 2011, I went back to teach one of the master's level classes there. And then a few years after that, I became the assistant academic dean. And then a few years after that, I became the actual academic dean. So currently, I'm teaching at the Weber Institute and I'm the academic dean there. And we have a master's degree and we have a doctorate in worship studies. Yeah, And uh, I can tell you more about that a little later, but I'm currently doing that. I'm also, since um, I quit teaching at Lincoln since September of 2019, I've been the part-time worship leader at a church in Clinton, Illinois, which is about 22 miles from my home. It's a little um, church in central Illinois where you see a lot of corn on the way there and on the way back.
1: That's most churches Um, in central Illinois.
0: Oh, that's true. Yes. So, um, so I've been doing that since, uh, for, for three years, a little over three years now. However, I am retiring from that job at the end of this year and yeah. just focusing on the Institute. So that's a little bit about me. And, and that's my, when
1: Danelle, after she retires, is going to write her second book.
0: Um, yes. <laughs> the, people, Ryan, people keep writing the books I want to write. So I'm going to have to get started because yeah. everybody else writing my book, so I'm going to yeah. have to find something that nobody's thought of yet.
1: So. I don't want to give away anything, but you're going to have to write that uh, First Chronicles 25-1 book before anybody else oh, yeah. gets to it. Uh, yeah, I'll do it. You'll get that joke later, audience, but <laughs> uh, for now, there's uh, that's all about Danelle, other than she has uh, some minor feelings for the Dallas Cowboys.
0: The Dallas Cowboys are the best team in the NFL right now. Um, they have the strongest defense, And yes, I live in a fantasy world, but I lived in Dallas for 14 years. And so during the, during Super Bowl years. And so I became a great fan of the Cowboys and I still hang on with every, with every little, every little aspect of hope that I can find. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. I'd say uh, they are by far a better football team right now than the St. Louis Rams. So I'm from St. Louis and they don't exist anymore. They're the LA Rams and they're dead to me. Um,
0: yeah, they are. <laughs> I did. I did. I did watch the Rams when when they were here. It was a good place to go see the Cowboys. So yeah. And usually we won. But anyway,
1: <laughs> I I hold nothing against you. Uh, and neither does the 25 year old Kurt Warner cereal box in my parents closet. <laughs> they thought That's the box all. would be famous. But based on their actions, they thought the cereal inside would also be famous. And I, uh, I think it's just old. I think it's just yeah. gross. Um, yeah. <laughs> one other thing, uh, two more things actually, before we move on to the content of today's episode. Uh, one, we always try to give um, ministry wins uh, in me, the host, or Jeremiah when he was here, um, and our guest, ministry wins that we've seen where we've seen God working in our church to help you as the listener know that God is working both in your church and outside in many different ways. So um, I'll go first. I have, uh, I'm at Kingsway Christian Church. I'm the worship and discipleship pastor. And functionally what that means is that I'm in charge of Sunday services and I'm in charge of small groups. And that can mean a lot more than that. But uh, I am starting a new small group uh, this semester and we've been in a handful of other ones. I hope none of my small group people from my last one listen to this podcast. But uh, (laughs) but. It, it was a good group, but I, we just like it felt like sm- what small groups do is they, they do studies and learn information and eat food and that's it. And it was a good small group while I was going, but it was kind of a guinea pig one. We hadn't started a new small group in a while. It kind of worked well, uh, but then we had a bunch of people sign up. Me and my senior pastor both were in that other one. So I thought we have enough people, we can split off and we're training up other people to lead, whatever. So I start this new one. And uh, we, I, I just felt like God was leading us to not focus on information at the beginning. Um, there's plenty of room for that later, but to focus on building up um, deep gospel friendships first. And so this whole semester, we're just taking time to um, eat meals together and hang out together and laugh and then um, f- find ways to uh, tell our stories and share um, how God's walked with us through our lives so far, and we're we've met twice. We had a an intro meeting to talk about when we're going to meet and all that kind of stuff, and what days work best for people. And then we had one small group together at our house, and it was so good. Like it's it's a few church people, a few Ozark people. Uh, by church people, I mean like lifelong, grown up in the church, went to Sunday school, know the Old Testament Bible stories people. And then also a few people who didn't grow up going to church who um, have church hurt or have struggled with substance abuse and alcoholism and 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 parents who were absent or angry or whatever, and it's all of us coming together, and we just had a really really good first meeting where where we just honestly shared with each other and and cared for each other rather than like. Not like opening up the Bible is bad or we're never going to do that, but but we're we're opening up how God's been working in our own stories first. And for however mushy that sounds and lovey-dovey and whatever, it was really good. It felt very different than the small groups I've been a part of in the past. So, yeah. So that's not a normal ministry win that I would talk about. It's not a worship ministry win, but but it's... It's a clear All good of life ministry is win.
0: Worship, Don't, you know that, right?
1: It is. I just
0: it's a worship win.
1: I just watched my degree disintegrate right off the wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Danelle, tell us about your ministry win.
0: Well, I think this one might interest your audience a little bit. When I started the church um, in Clinton, the two there were two services and they couldn't be further apart. Like I was hired to basically show up on Sundays at eight o'clock and lead three hymns and direct the choir. That was my job. And um, we had a contemporary worship leader who I'm friends with and who had been a seminary student, but it was a very different style of worship. So if COVID did anybody any favors that's one way in which it did us a favor because during the COVID era, when we were trying to have shorter services and not have people on stage singing at each other, we did Mm -hmm. one style of service, the two of us together. And since that time, since we've been back to two services, I've been trying to bring the two services closer together. So we're at a point now where we have pretty much the same content in both services. In the first service, we might do one hymn that is different from a contemporary song in the second service, but everything else is the same. And every time I've taught them a new song, I've taught the new song to both services. And the only big difference is the second service has a band and is louder. So yeah. they've come together content-wise. So we're at a point now where we can bring you can come to either service and get the same content. And possibly as we're thinking about, we could go back to one service that would be acceptable to all. So that's a big win for me. I never yeah. have liked services that are so uh, polar opposite of one another. That doesn't sound very intergenerational or unifying to me. So yeah. th- I, I feel like f- for, for what I've set them up for, for what I've been trying to do, we've had some success at at bringing people together that way.
1: Yeah. I, I think I can't remember (laughs) because I'm so sorry that this episode is going to come out like six months after the last one. It's been a minute, but uh, I, I think we've discussed before on the podcast how um, at least me and I think Jeremiah too, have some pretty strong feelings about um, maybe not segregated services, but services that entice people to segregate. So where we would hear in the New Testament, there's no Greek or Jew, but we do have a Jewish service if you have like Jewish background and language, whatever, and we have a separate Greek service. And it's like, even if it's not forcing you into two camps, it's enticing you into two camps where you're almost enticing a younger generation to not be around an older generation and not be able to share in what they've learned from discipleship and all that. And uh, I've served at a church before where, um, where the worship ministry leadership was trying to push that direction towards one service. And, and uh, uh, as, as they would try to incorporate more non-professional w- corporate worship moments, so like responsive scripture readings and other stuff, you just need to know English to do that. You don't need to like a song in a certain decade or another decade you just know English and then you can participate in the reading or, or different prayer moments or things like that. It, uh, they're, they're trying to push for that. And eventually the senior leadership pushed back and said, we've made a commitment to two styles. Like, like we don't see any benefit in going to one service where everybody's joined together or at least one kind, but preferably COVID excluded one service so that the church can gather as the church and not as the old church and the young church and this segregated, cut-in-half church. I sympathize with that a lot, and I, I, uh, that is a big win that they're moving towards that. That's cool. Um, okay, last thing we're going to do before we get to the content is we have a few worship resources for you. Um, we always try to provide resources to um, help your worship ministry. You um, can't make it more effective, But we can make your life easier and also give you resources um, to help you branch out beyond your own creativity from your own experience and your own brain, your own reading of scripture. Um, And so Danelle and I have come up with uh, three separate resources. One is a website called reworship.blogspot.com. Honestly, if you look up reworship, that's why I did and it came up so you don't have to look that hard. Uh, But Danelle, why was this one Helpful and useful for you?
0: Well, you were talking about responsive readings, and I, I do a lot of responsive readings, prayers, uh, scripture readings um, every Sunday pretty much. Not, not doesn't take a huge amount of time, usually two or three minutes, but I do them. And I was using uh, primarily the worship source book, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. But I found this online, and it's a more, I would call it a more contemporary source for responsive readings. And it, you can search by uh, scripture. You can church search by part of the service, like call to worship or confession. You can search by the church here, a lot of different ways you can search and it's updated so that you have new ones coming in all the time. Yeah. And so I, I use it a lot now because it's got more, um, I, I, uh, more contemporary language than some of the worship source book things. And so I think it feels a little bit, more familiar to people like here in central Illinois and um, you just have to be careful but you do with the worship source book too that you're saying what you believe I mean you know yeah. people from different denominations have written these things Um there's been some great sources like I found a prayer like 9-11 was on a Sunday this year and I found yeah. a prayer in memory of 9-11 or some some palpable t- prayers <laughs> concerning uh, Independence Day or Memorial Day things like that that I try to shy away from mostly. Um, so anyway, there's some really good, so I use that one a lot. Just, you have to be sure, of course, you have to throw the copyright information up for those. Like you do your songs because they have yeah. most of it copyrighted, but that's easy to do. So I really like it. It's different authors and so it doesn't feel like you're doing the same thing every week. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's a good, a good source
1: for, I, I just pulled up the website. For example, this is, I'm not going to read the whole prayer, but this is the first section of the prayer that is just like pasted right on the front page right now uh, on October 13th at 1.44 p.m. Central Time. Uh, It's just called Prayer for Others by uh, Christine Longhurst. And it just says, God, like the Israelites in the wilderness, we too have known your love and experienced your care and provision. You invite us to extend that love to the world around us, to care for others as deeply as we care for ourselves. And so we bring the needs of our world before you now. In your mercy, hear our prayer. And yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. It's while you do want to vet them to make sure I am saying and praying something that we believe, the benefit to that is you are getting the good parts of other denominations, other Christian fellowships that you are not a part of, that they do well, that you and your tradition may do less well or may focus on less specifically. So you can kind of get the benefit of how God is working in all these different traditions. Um, yeah, so, and people,
0: these kinds of things teach people how to pray. And yeah. if, you, if, you, if you leave people up to their own devices, okay, now everybody pray for your neighbor. What <laughs> What yeah. is that? How does that feed them or form them? But if you yeah. have good language to help them with those kinds of prayers, it, it, it just adds yeah. power to it and teaches them even how do they pray at home or how do they pray yeah. or on a meal or something like that.
1: I think one of the deepest parts of a human being is their desire. And so praying written prayers helps you pray and form your own desire as you're praying, form what you want so that you're not just praying for the one thing that you naturally want. You're not just praying in the one way that you naturally see God as defender or as uh, caretaker or as whatever, but you're able to be led to form yourself through these other people's written prayers and you praying them to see God and to want things differently.
0: We're doing, right just this Sunday, Ryan, we're doing something where the the sermon has, as part of it, 1 Corinthians 12, you know, we're all part of one body. And So I found a prayer on this site talking about that. Thank you, God, that we're all part of one body. So I've split it up into pieces. And after each piece, I'm going to ask people to look around at one another. Like, you just prayed for the body. This is the body you prayed for. And then after the next one, look around and spot somebody that you're going to pray for right now. And yeah. then after the next one, look around and, and ask God what gift you see. So it becomes internalized. Yeah. I think that really helps people not just to pray the words, but to have to then like interact with the words. Yeah. That's just an idea.
1: That's really valuable. I, uh, we're actually at our church this Sunday praying about the body and then saying, uh, go ahead and find somebody who you think is the armpit of Christ and who you, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, you better run hide. Who's the it. sweaty, sweaty sole of the foot of Christ <laughs> in his sandal? No, uh, no, that is really good. I, I had an experience with, uh, the old worship pastor at College Heights. I say old. He was there when I was there and he's not there anymore, but he's not that old. Um, But he got a spiritual formation master's, Josh Huckabee. And I remember him uh, having a, a, oh, I'm going to get this wrong. The prayer you pray before hearing the word of God. Is it prayer of illumination or something? Yeah. Yeah. He did that in a tactile head, shoulders, knees and toes kind of way. He said, Mm -hmm. uh, repeat after me. And you can't see this if you're listening to the podcast right now, but he would touch his eye and everybody else would touch their eye, well, like maybe right next to their eye, and say, "God, open our eyes to help see you. Help us see you in in the text this morning, in the words that we hear, and uh, help us see you in our neighbor." And then touch your ear, and God help. It was it was really cool. It's that it's that's more the tactile side than seeing other people as the body of Christ. But but this website can help you with some of those uh, branching out into um, praying and worshiping. Um, outside of the way you normally think, and uh, even in other ways, tactile ways, whatever, poetic or prose. Yeah, it can just help stretch your, your. I almost said prayer game, but I meant prayer life. <laughs> Work on your prayer game. Um, yeah, so that's item number one, uh, worship resource number one. The second one is uh, a book that we may have talked about on here before, maybe not, called The Worship Architect by Constance Cherry, but the reason we're bringing it up is there's a new version. Um, so what's new in the new, or actually, should we just tell them what it is first? If they don't know what the book is. That might help with what's new later. A short summary would be, it's a book that helps you design services in a way around, no, yeah, the title. Uh, it's a book that helps you design services in a biblical way around meeting with God and retelling and reliving the story of God in your worship service rather than kind of the—I'm going to say this because I grew up in it—kind of the church growth movement. You need to go fast songs to slow songs, then a sermon, then an altar call, a call to repentance thing, and that's how you do a service. Um, It's a lot more thoughtful and got a lot more about um, the body of Christ meeting with God and being sent out by God and some of these other things. It's really if you've never experienced a worship service like that, uh, you should read this book. But like I said, there is a new version. Um,
0: right. Well, it's it's based on what what you might know as the fourfold order, but Constance yes. calls it the gospel order, and it's um, she doesn't call them folds; she calls them rooms. Thus, the metaphor of the architect. Yeah. So um, let me just talk about Constance for a minute. Constance yeah. teaches at the Institute of Worship Studies and is my friend and. Um, she is an internationally known author and expert in worship. I just, I was at her home home this earlier this year, and she has on her wall in her music room, an entire wall of covers of her books that she's written. And the worship architect and other books have been translated into like a dozen different languages. Um, So she's been all over the world teaching and so you should listen to what she says. So some of the new things in the new edition include um, globalization and secularization, kind of the more uh, emphasis that we have at that in our world today. She talks some about during the pandemic, how worship changed and some of the things that uh, we are now, I don't know, suffering from or enjoying because of worship yeah. during yeah. the pandemic. Um, <laughs> The relationship between evangelism and worship, which is that, you know, like you mentioned several times already, Ryan, the church growth relationship and um, the um, some other things like that. And then she's updated some of the things in the new book, too. So if you haven't read it, it's worth rereading it. I mean, if you have read it, it's worth rereading it. If you haven't read it, um, I would say that, um, you know, the book we're looking at today um, has similar a similar purpose, but she says it in different ways. Yeah. Right. So I think it's, it's a good, um, resource to to go along with what we're reading.
1: Yeah. Half of the ways that I find new authors are by reading books with footnotes and then tracking down those footnotes, seeing a quote that they quoted and thinking, I really like that. Whoever wrote that book that he's quoting from is probably really smart. And Zach Hicks quotes Constance Cherry, specifically the worship architect a handful of times. Now yeah. now Zach and his book is not specifically about planning worship more about like
0: Well, and hers isn't either. I mean yeah. it does do that, but there's a lot more to it than that. I mean yeah. she talks about some of the same things just in different language. I yeah. mean, you know, a different from a different standpoint. Yeah. So,
1: also, we have a third resource and it is uh the Robert E Weber Institute for Worship Studies.
0: Yes. So I wanted to bring that to the table today as just to let you all know what it is and what it's about. So we have, as I mentioned, a master's degree in worship and a doctorate in worship. The really fascinating and intriguing thing about IWS is you don't have to have an undergraduate degree in music or worship, and you don't have to have a, to get into the master's program, and you don't yeah. have to have the same to get into the doctoral program. Now, there are a few more hoops that you jump through to get in if you don't Um, but if you're listening and you um, have an undergrad degree and are interested in furthering your education or you have a master's degree in almost anything and somehow became a worship Mm -hmm. leader which happens to a lot of people Um, then we also have a doctoral degree Well, the the beauty of IWS is we have students from all over the world which was fun during COVID but we're also we're almost coming back now together yeah we meet in Jacksonville Florida twice a year for a week, um, early January, late June. Um, and then everything else is done online. There are, um, it's, a, it's a, Dr. Weber called it a semi-monastic model. We are, we're together all the time. <laughs> we worship every morning. Mm-hmm. We have meals together. We have worship practicums in the evening. You get to know your professors. This is yeah. not an online school. You get to know your professors they keep up with you, um, you go in with a cohort, you get to know these friends. Um, it's a very incarnational education. And so it will expand what you know about worship to ways that you didn't expect it to expand. So um, if you're interested in all of that, you that, know, Ryan can give you my info or, or you can look it up, um, iws.edu. Um, so I just wanted to say that as a resource, there are things on our website. that are also just helpful as a resource as yeah. well. But in terms of your long-term, your long-term commitment to ministry, it would be a, an, an, an awesome opportunity.
1: So. Yeah. I've many times they have a, a bibliography or an annotated bibliography or something yeah. on the website yeah. of a lot of books that they love and that they use for classes and whatever. Um, and as somebody who has two degrees that say worship in it, uh, <laughs> um, I have looked heavily at this school and I definitely, if my wife will let me go back to school, uh, would consider it. But what really stuck out to me about this school um, is that uh, uh, it is like the best of all worlds um, where kind of, I was looking at a ton of different schools if I ever wanted to go back for a doctorate and it's why wouldn't I just go to the Nazarene university that uh, Constance Cherry teaches at or, or this or that place. And what she taught at
0: Wesleyan, she taught at Wesleyan. But what did I say? Nazarene? Oh, Nazarene. oh my gosh. She, she retired from there and they didn't have okay. a worship. They didn't have a worship.
1: That's but crazy. Anyway, go on. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> what I, what I loved about this school against the others, not like they're bad, but uh because it's only an intensive week school without a campus, they just meet at a church because it's these things. They can steal the best people, from other places for a week and then have them teach online. And so you have people from um, all these different schools, all these different traditions um, that can come give you a really broad experience rather than uh, a school that may specifically have one denomination in the name or, or right. only has the people who teach there. This is all adjunct so you can get the best people from everywhere. Um, yes.
0: Our faculty is is top notch and um you will get anything better anywhere else that's for sure yeah and it's also we're also very affordable when yeah. you look at education that's so. the other nice thing yeah. is
1: they save a yeah. lot of money on not having 20 degrees in a football team um right yeah and they couldn't be the cowboys if they tried so i'm glad they no. they haven't done that uh, <laughs> well on that note
0: uh, okay anyway, there's my plug thank you for letting yeah. me get it down
1: Yeah, it is a really cool school, and uh, I am highly considering it if, again, if my wife lets me go back to school. But she specifically said the words, I'd like to be married to somebody who is not in school for a little bit. And I said, okay. Um,
0: Fair enough. I agree with her.
1: Yes. So uh, check out IWS. Check out um, The Worship Architect, the new version that's coming out, and the uh, reworship.blogspot.com. We'll have all those linked in the show notes below. Um, but with that said, let us jump into chapter eight of the worship pastor. The worship pastor as watchful prophet. Okay, let's jump into the discussion on chapter eight, the worship pastor as watchful prophet. Now, uh, this chapter, let, let me just say at the beginning, we're not just going to read the book to you and just only talk about everything the book says, um, but we're going to use this as a, as a launching point for our conversation about the same topic, bringing my and Danelle's experience and in education into it, um, what we know. But uh, something I noticed off the bat is at, at every chapter, he starts with a quote or two from some other people, and one of the quotes is from one of uh, Danelle's favorite worship books, which is *The Dangerous Act of Worship* by Mark Laberton. Laberton, um, okay. where Mark says this about uh, about the same kind of topic. He says, "Our engagement in works of justice arise out of worshipful life. It comes not out of being activists, but out of living in God's rest." every day. It's a, a really powerful way to start this discussion, especially because I think a lot of us, uh, if you're anything like me and grew up in the church growth movement, um, that's kind of your base instinct. I'm going to plan four to five songs, go fast to slow and whatever. I say that a lot. I'm not trying to be judgy, but, but that's just, just where we're living and we live on the CCLI top 100 and we, whatever. That's just our, our innate instinct about worship. And to read a, a, a chapter title like The Worship Pastor's Watchful Prophet is really challenging. It, it makes me feel like there's, I mean, I mean, all the chapters to date make me feel like there's more to worship than just the hour on Sunday. Um, but it, it, it makes you feel like there's there's more to be done than to plan songs and execute them well.
0: Yeah, I the the Laberton book was the first kind of like I started when I was going to conferences and things maybe ten years ago. Yeah, all of a sudden the um, the workshops started being on things like worship and and justice. <laughs> yeah, and the Laberton book is the first book I was trying to find it here, but I don't have it in my office here. But the the first book that I saw that actually addressed. That specifically that these two things should be wedded together, and since then it's been uh, it's been talked about a lot more.
1: I I don't want to steal from um, the next chapter, which is worship pastor is missionary. Uh, so I'm not going to steal from it, except for this little part. Um, there's this diagram that I'm sure we're going to talk about next episode uh, of a human body. If you've ever been in like health class and seen the human body diagram with like the heart and then all the veins going out. Uh, the circul- circulatory. I haven't been in public school in a while. Uh, anyway, the, the, the blood d- transmission system. Anyway, as a picture of that kind of body with the heart at the middle in it, middle of the body and it says worship over it and then all these blood vessels going to the rest of the body and it says missions over that. And I think worship and justice act in the very same way. That's going to be half of the quotes I mentioned in this, in this episode is that Worship is the heart and the center and the fuel that sends us out into justice work and opens our eyes to justice work. It's the engine of the car that that carries forward God's desire for justice and and our desire to be a part of God's kingdom of justice. And that's why I really loved the way this chapter starts is uh, Zach gives a story, the author gives a story about a homeless man in his church who... Um, he, he says homeless at one point and then at another point he says one step above homeless so I'm not exactly sure what but you can kind of imagine the picture um, somebody who doesn't have new nice clothes who um, might not be as put together as everybody else he tells a story about this homeless guy who comes up to him after the service and is just raving about how um, blessed he was by the music and even like swears in 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 how much uh, explaining how much he loved it And Zach says this on page 87. There are a lot of church contexts I know where a homeless man would feel judged and self-conscious about sitting in worship next to the pretty, well-dressed, and well-to-do. Our church context, thankfully, was different. The gospel was preached in such a way that it leveled some of the hierarchical aspects of social propriety. What do you think about this story at the beginning?
0: (laughs) It showed me like, I would like to know why this man was so enamored yeah. with it. Yeah. And I would like to know more about, you know, what this church does to to bring about this concept of justice and peace and reconciliation. It it made me really kind of wanting a little bit more explanation. And honestly, I felt that's the same way about Dr. Laverton's book. He did a great job of explaining why we need wor- justice and worship, but the practical piece of it didn't ever yeah. really and anyway, I just wanted to know more about, I wish I knew more about this person and how it connected with him. I would love to, have to take to that side of the story.
1: But Yeah. I, I got to admit, I felt the same way. I was like, that's really cool. You've sold me on the fact that I want to do that. How'd you do it?
0: Right. Exactly. <laughs> what, what are yeah. the
1: steps to go? What's the, what's the metric that shows that I'm doing that or not doing that? How can yeah. we affect and change things to do that? Um, But I I think part of the – when we talk about justice and we talk about the prophetic role, um, I think what I was taught growing up, those don't seem like the same thing. Like the cultural definition of prophecy that I always heard, in the same way there's like a cultural definition of hell. The devil's in charge of it. He has a pitchfork. He's red. Like all the cartoons you've ever seen with a picture of hell in it have like the red with the black hair and the little pitchfork and whatever. And is that the biblical picture – not, not really, not, not exactly, but that, that same idea, that all same, all not, not not at all. all, at all. <laughs> I, did, I didn't want to make a, a, just as strong of a statement as I should have, but, um, okay. the, the kind of the cartoon picture of prophecy and the role of a prophet that I, I learned growing up is it's a person who predicts the future. And if that's what this chapter was about, it wouldn't make any sense.
0: Well, there were prophets like that. Yes, that's, that's not. You're right. That's not the gist of these prophets.
1: Yeah, and so as we as we start this chapter and we see justice and reconciliation, um, that's where he starts, and then he moves into talking about the role of the prophets in the Bible. Now, yes, some of it was predicting the future. You can you can correct me or add or subtract to this however you want. But um, when uh, I was in Bible college. Uh, in my undergrad and I took a class on the book of Revelation, our our professor was talking about prophecy and talking about how people assume that all prophecy is a prediction. And he said that in general, the way Bible prophecies work is that the prophet is God's mouthpiece and is correcting slash threatening is a threat, a prediction, kind of.
0: These prophets... I mean, Old Testament prophets that, that are talked about in this chapter were covenant keepers. Like, yeah. it was their job yeah. to keep the covenant. And yeah. so, that's why they are always <laughs> um, complaining. Yeah. Because people didn't keep the covenant. So, yeah. they were calling out people for not keeping the covenant. And that is, like you were saying, yes, God's mouthpiece. Yeah. For calling for, for speaking out.
1: Yeah. So They um, are... They are, in a way, kind of like lawyers delivering paperwork. Not a restraining order, but like a cease and desist. You're infringing on a copyright. What happens? A lawyer has to serve you papers that say, please stop doing this or else legal consequences. Is that a prediction of the future? Kind of, but it's also a crossroads. We're making sure you know that you are in the wrong and you need to change what you're doing because of our ownership of it because of our relationship with you and uh, or else these consequences will happen. Now there are like messianic prophecies and, and other prophecies where it is just a prediction, uh, uh, not a prediction, but like a future telling it's going to happen. Well, yeah.
0: there is. I mean, there, the prophets speak on behalf of God. Yeah. So that could be something in the future or it could be something in the present. Right. Yeah. So, All the messianic prophecies that we that we read—that's a—that's a a future thing. But in many instances, it was also a present thing, right? They were speaking on behalf of God, and people listened to them. And and every every one of the prophets pretty much, um, you know, call out Israel on their worship. Yeah, got something to say about it, especially like like shows up in this chapter. You know, do justice, love mercy. That kind yeah. of thing. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Yeah. Away with your feasts. All those are about worship because, like you said so well, they were not doing it the way that God intended.
1: Yeah. I've mentioned that on the past few church podcasts we've had, the Kingsway Christian Church Podcast or Kingsway Podcast, whatever. Find out on Spotify, YouTube. It's not the same kind of podcast, but um but yeah, it's a it's a huge deal to God. And and I've often wondered. I know there's a good explanation out there and you, you may be able to offer this explanation. I don't mean to put you on the spot. But what, uh, what made, this kind of a summary question, what made Israel's sacrifices um, in First in Samuel or all the way back in Joshua or, or around the Exodus event, what made Israel's sacrifices good then and not good later? What made God happy with them earlier and disgusted by them, as you can see through the prophets later?
0: Well, it wasn't always disgusted. Mostly, yeah, was Amos was disgusted, but yeah. um, it was the heart. It was the matter of the heart. Yeah, like what made you know what what made Abel's sacrifice um acceptable and Cain's sacrifice not acceptable all the way yeah. in Genesis? Well, Abel's was what God asked him to do, and Cain's was not. And he didn't, his heart was not in the right place. And it was an act of disobedience, right? Yeah. Why did God strike uh, Nadab and Abihu dead? Well, because they didn't do what God told them to do. They, they offered a sacrifice, but it wasn't what he asked them for.
1: Yeah. So
0: it's a matter of obedience and disobedience. And it's why, it's why Jesus' death was necessary because we can't live that way. We can't do that on our own. We are always, yeah. always messing stuff up. And so... That one where he says, you know, away with your feast, everything he mentions in that he's, this is detestable to me. And they had to be going, yeah. but, but you said, <laughs> you, yeah. said but you said. But we're playing by right. the rules. But yeah, we're doing it, except yeah. you're not doing it if you're hard. Yeah. And that goes back to what's really at the heart of worship is not um, doing what you want to do. It, there's obedience is a significant part of how we worship.
1: Yeah. So Obedience in relationship where you're both. I I think about this in terms of, like, human relationships. There may not be a specific set of rules for a dad and a child. Um, but in order to maintain that relationship, sometimes boundaries have to be set up. And so, like, the government has clear boundaries set up. If you are physically abusive to your children, you will not be able to keep them. Um, that is a rule that they've imposed on families. But if you're... If you provide for all the needs but are emotionally and socially absent, like that is also not a healthy parent child relationship. And so there is room for right practice, orthopraxy. There is room for that. And there's a benefit from that. But it's at the core of it, it is orthopraxy within a relationship. We know God and God knows us and we love each other. You just
0: described covenant. Yeah. That's what covenant is. Like yeah. there were rules, but they were within the covenantal system of, um, I will be your people. I will, you will be my people and I will be your God. Yeah. and That's why the prophets were covenant keepers. They were supposed to
1: yeah. keep
0: making sure that Israel was keeping their part of the covenant.
1: So I had, a uh, uh I got the opportunity to speak at our high school retreat this spring. So I'm sorry if I said this in the last podcast or two, but it was so long ago, I can't remember. Um, But I I got to teach on uh, uh, Matthew, oh, either five or seven, when he's talking about anger and lust and divorce. My favorite thing to teach high schoolers about is anger, lust, and divorce. Um, But the way I started it, I feel like if I was a high schooler, I would have a hard time understanding why, I need to be hearing about this or why I need to obey this or why whatever without a why behind it, without setting up the why first. And so um, I talked about uh, how a lot of these are reinterpreting Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Um, And I gave the Exodus story before I talked about any of the rest of it. And I tied it at the same time. This sounded really complicated when I'm talking about it right now. But I tied it at the same time to... Um, a story about a, a missions justice organization that our church works with called Rafa House, um, who rescues uh, girls mostly in Cambodia, but I think they're in a few countries now um, from sex trafficking. And so I told this story about uh, a guy who's like football player build, 6'3, six, 6'5, three, six, 300 pounds, who would work with the police with Rafa House, work with the police, put on a bulletproof vest, and go on these raids. And he would be the one to run in and pick up kids and run out. And he just run in and swoop kids off the ground and deliver them out of of these sex trafficking houses, out of these prostitution places. Uh, And um, he would rescue them, and that's really, really, really good, and that's what God wants. But that's all they've known. So without any rehabilitation they're going to turn back into the people they were trained to be. And that's not their fault. That's just all they know. That's, that's all they've lived in. That's the rules they've lived by. And so what happens in those stories? Well, the guy goes in and grabs him and takes him out, and then they're set up in a new community with new rules that is trying to help them not be a brothel anymore, not be sex-trafficked kids anymore, but just be kids. And that's what happened in the Exodus story, that God ran in, with his bulletproof vest and using the 10 plagues pushed through all the people trying to hold Israel captive, picked them up, ran out with them. But then Exodus 20 happens. And this is God trying to set up this rehabilitation place with new rules so that the Israelites don't turn into Egypt again. They don't just do Egypt because that's all they've known and, and repeat what was bad about Egypt. And so that's like the, why I had set up, um, And I feel like that applies to this same thing right now. It is a relationship. It is about God um, restoring us. But in that restoration, in order to be Garden of Eden people, Kingdom of God people, there's a relationship that exists alongside Tangent within a set of rules um, that help maintain the relationship just like wedding vows at a wedding. Those are the set of rules that even though you love each other and you have a relationship, these are also the boundaries that that you don't want to cross. Um, And that's why I really love uh, Zach's summary on page 88. Um, He's talking about prophecy and prophets and their role, and he says prophets were equal opportunity prosecutors, calling out God's people and godless pagans alike on these rule fractures between them and their creator God. If we go at this pace, we're never gonna make it through this yeah, chapter.
0: I, I just, I just, you <laughs> actually wanted to talk about yeah the um. Uh, first chronicles 25 one yes because i i'm not so sure i completely agree with this agree okay with it but it goes further like the music musicians of david's time were given like prophetic status right yeah so it does say in 25 one uh some some translations say accompanied by harps or some translations say with harps lyres and cymbals but there's a kind of suggestion that that music has a strong prophetic value it's, itself. And I yeah. wish he would have talked about that more because um, he, man and ASAP and Jeduthun they were, they were prophets. They were called seers. So they, they had, they held a prophetic office as musicians. So it's not that I disagree with what he says, but I think there's more to those, to that, that prophetic value of, music which we we tend to I think we tend to set that aside like whatever whatever Ryan says on Sunday or whatever Ryan plans on Sunday will help enact justice but what about what Ryan sings or what Ryan plays how does that help Yeah. Um, as a part of the prophetic calling to be a mouthpiece for God so you can speak for God and it, a prophecy doesn't have to be bad that's what that's yeah. what just to speak on God's behalf can also be good. There were a lot of things the prophets said that were good and yeah. um, um, helpful and heartwarming and promising, right? It so makes what, me think so of uh
1: Eli and Samuel. Um that that Eli's prophetic ministry was, whether explicit or not, prophetically declared through what was his mom's name, Hannah. Mm-hmm through Hannah's pregnancy that she had set up almost a, uh, God, if you're out there, help me conceive and I'll give you this son. And her becoming pregnant is a natural thing that could happen. It's not words, it's an action, but it was almost this, this prophecy itself, this mouthpiece of God saying, yes, I'm with you. I agree. Uh, uh, birth this child and I will raise him up and train him to be a prophet. It's not a negative thing. It was, it was honestly a calling for Samuel's own prophetic ministry in a prophetic way. Um, But I don't distract from first Chronicles 25 one. If you have more to say about it.
0: No, no, that's just what I wanted to like get your take on it. I I don't disagree. um, But I do think there's more to the prophetic function of music. We do, we are prophets when we speak on behalf of God yeah. um, and, and our music can also have a, a function of some kind that helps draw people to God without words. I, I think. Yeah. So it's, that's a whole nother book that maybe that's the book. All right. It is first Chronicles 25. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So if you believe that um, the scripture that says the Holy spirit intercedes on our behalf and in groans beyond words, I don't know if Uh, I just mm -hmm. butchered that verse or not, but, um, then, then if we're God's mouthpiece, but also Balaam's donkey can be God's mouthpiece and then, then it's, it's not hard to think that things without speech can be God's mouthpiece, God's interceding voice in a moment. Um, Mm -hmm. interceding, not necessarily changing or bad or, or, or judgmental, but, but interceding as in. Breaking into a moment and communicating from God. Um, what are, I want to kind of set up a practical, somewhat softball question right here. What are ways, I, church growth movement again, that's what I've grown up in, that's where my instincts are. A lot of it is talking about God as if you're behind his back, but in a positive way. Like, you know, if you ever see God, this would be nice, or, or he's kind of like this if you've never met him. Um, what are ways that we as worship leaders and worship teams can be God's voice in a worship gathering?
0: Well, I think every time we open our mouths, we're, <laughs> we're saying something on behalf of God, like our music, our prayers, our little, Brian Chapel calls them rubrics. Remember that? We, we read yeah. that book. and what, like what you put, you know, what you say before the song, um, the songs that you pick you're saying something on behalf of God, right? The scriptures yeah. that you read, the prayers, you pray. Um, and if you don't know that, then you ought to go back and, and uh, remember that because that kind of puts a whole new um, like, layer of importance to what all of us do as worship leaders. We're not speaking for ourselves. We're speaking for God. And people would say, you ask the average congregation member and they say, well, the preacher, he speaks for God, Yeah. right? But they most people don't think the worship leader also has that responsibility, even though in a slightly different way, um, which is why his, what, seven or eight little um, things that he has here are so important because he, he lays out seven. He lays out yeah. what that looks
1: like. Yeah. That's the, that's the bridge I was trying to make. is oh, uh, okay. well, I, I remember, I think everything you said is absolutely right. But one of the most clear ways I feel like I was corrected in my thinking about being God's mouthpiece, God's voice, rather than just being a dude who's talking about God as if he's not there, um, was in right. how you talked about reading scripture and services and um, a few things. One, how it shouldn't just be a proof text for what we want to say, but how it is God's word. It is God's right. God speaking. And as we read scripture on its own, we are hearing God's voice. And then also we can talk in services in a way that is speaking for God or, or leading people to God from God. I graduated from Ozark Christian College then I went to Lincoln and did this degree with you. And I'm back at Ozark uh, mentoring one of the college worship teams. And this past, uh, we've led two chapels so far and they're really good at music. Really, mm-hmm. really good at music. The part mm-hmm. they're less good at, and we've talked about this and none of this is a diss, they're great and they're lovely people and they're called by God. And I see that in them and I'm trying to be a a mentor to them to help train them up. But one of the things I'm trying to help them with is like, you were just talking about those rubrics, those moments between elements where you're leading people. And instead of talking, um, in just an interpersonal way, us and them, or in just a data factual way, this Bible verse says this, uh, let's sing, whatever. Um, talking in a way about us relating to God. And even though that's that may be first person or third person, whatever, you're bringing God into the conversation with them. So um, I talked to them about how to lead a call to worship if you have to come up with one or whatever, which you could absolutely use reworship.blogspot.com and uh, find a lot of resources to do that really well. But I also talked about how um, being saturated in Scripture, even a, even a specific Scripture, to where you can use scriptural allusions, scripture words that you're not you're not reciting a verse, but you're um, like saying, "Gracious God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love." That is quoting scripture, but it's also just a scripture idea. Letting your call to worship be saturated in that, and then tie it to you responding to God and and kind of relating how God relates to that scripture. So, the kind of name title. God our defender, God our comforter. Um, right. So I I was leading them in this kind of tiny workshop on, on crafting these verbals and trying to draw them from, I'm going to tell you some Bible data, let's sing, to uh, uh, let's respond to our, uh, under the banner of God's comfort, to God's call to worship in singing or something like that, where we're bringing him into the conversation and kind of being his mouthpiece so that's
0: his that's his first point world wielder word wielder that you're talking about um yeah you have to know the word in order to do all the things you just said yeah um you have to be saturated in yourself you have to be able to speak with confidence when you when you uh when you quote the word of god or yeah um suggest something about the word of god and if you're not committed to it then you don't know those things yeah
1: so it's yeah it's one reason why I'm not trying to make this a, a commercial for Ozark Christian college, but uh, <laughs> Matt Stafford, who's the, the director of the worship and creative arts department at the college. Um, I don't think he's read that many Weber books. I don't think he really has a, a worship theology specific degree more than a, a music specific degree. Um, but I watch him align with Weber on a lot of stuff simply because he is steeped in the Psalms. Um, I had to have him sound check his headset mic for my ordination a few years ago. I said, hey, can you just talk in the mic and I'll see if I can work out this this uh, feedback. And he recited the Psalms without stuttering for five minutes. Just like not even one verse here, one verse there, just verse after verse in a row of the Psalms because... <laughs> Like the psalms say, he's hidden them in his heart that he might not sin against God. He's he's yeah, that's uh, great. yeah, and just that scriptural saturation, he can he can pull a a call to worship out of nowhere. Well, not out of nowhere, out of his knowledge of scripture, but he can do it on the fly because it's so he's so steeped in it. And that's one way we can be a prophet in the biblical definition of, of, of God's mouthpiece. Um, this second one. I think it's also super interesting. Second of the seven ways Zach Hicks set up sets out that we can do this is a heresy fighter. <laughs> um, yeah.
0: I, I love this actually. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm kind of interested in knowing like, um, what, what heresies, I mean, yeah. Uh, the one that he mentions about, um, um arianism the, and the god helps those who no that that's oh, all that's, that's been combated but today uh, american heresy god yeah. helps those who help themselves yeah and this, this idea that we um we ignore the need for grace right
1: yeah
0: um that's one but there are so yeah. many things like like you're talking about the way you grow up things we do at the lord's table for example like, um, I, I come to the table as a really awful sinner and I have to confess my sins to get there. That's not true. Yeah. Right. Um, just things like that, that it becomes our job in many ways to help people do the right thing yeah. in order to know the right thing. Yeah. So the way that we worship, not just the words that we sing, but the way that we worship, um, Is a theology. You're teaching people theology.
1: Yeah.
0: And so it's part two. It's like you better know your Bible. You also better know your theology.
1: Yeah. What
0: do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Trinity? What do you believe about the Lord's Supper? What do you believe about baptism? What do you what do you believe about these things? Because it comes out in everything that we do. Yeah. And you're you are actually a um, purveyor of that information to people, whether they realize it or not. So, I think that's I really think that's-,
1: that's really important, and that's why I loved about my master's degree with you, is my whole undergraduate degree was fifty plus hours of Bible, some practical skills to help me do my job, and right. then uh, one doctrine class, one theology class about Jesus, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then a theological integration in a ministry class where you have to every two or three weeks write in a paper about what you believe about baptism and then what you believe about hell and then what you believe about God and then what you, and it's like all the all the theology in that degree were sprinkles on the icing on the cupcake right at the end and then they send you out. But mm-hmm. in your degree, which is also usually just how master's degrees work, um, I got a lot more of the theological background to it. I got a lot more of the foundation um, a lot more. I've been thinking a lot about theology and and biblical studies, and uh, always letting our theology be corrected by the Bible, corrected by God's word. Um, but whether or not you understand it or acknowledge it, theology is the only way that we are mobile in our faith. We can well, read a passage. Yeah.
0: Well, everybody's a theologian. Yeah. Not just you and me, not just the preacher. Everybody in your congregation is a theologian. They're just studying God, right? Yeah. So they don't think that way, but they should think that way. Yeah. Right. And so I, one helpful piece of the worship architect is a, a song evaluation form Yeah. in her book where she, you know, you answer all these questions about a text. And um, a, a song text. And Ryan, you can you can undo somebody's theology with one line of a song. I yeah. mean, you can you can convince them without meaning to. You can convince them of a poorly constructed theology, or yeah, uh, like I call it scripturally bereft um, <laughs> lyric. Yeah, which makes our job so much bigger in yeah. order to. I mean, combating heresy is not a small thing.
1: Yeah. it's Right? I, I think I used to be a little overboard on some of this kind of stuff, but it still has a place um, to where at a, a ministry that I used to serve at, I was asked to lead a Zach Williams song where the bridge says, if you believe it, if you receive it, if you can feel it, somebody testify. That was the whole bridge. And he sang it a few times and then he went back to something else. And, I had this huge problem with it. Not only is it just kind of confusing and kind of, you could make it mean anything, but at the same time, it's like one, two letter word different from the prosperity gospel slogan. Yeah. And, yeah. and if, if you really look at that one word, maybe it doesn't necessarily mean it, but I was just super worried. I was like, I don't want to do this song. And they made me because they said, uh, well, you're overthinking it. It's just fun. Do it. So I had to do yeah. it, but I tried to really preface before, like, uh, like, like, uh, be a bomb disposal unit and and uh, cut the red wire before we sang it to be like, <laughs> I had to do a verbal to undo what that song was about to say, and there have been plenty of others where, where uh, the theology in it, maybe it's something I don't like, but if it isn't wrong, then I. I'm fine with it or I can explain it away, but there have been a few that are like a little troubling um, that you just have to watch out for.
0: Kind of goes along with number four, idol expert too. And um, I think that's, that might be the biggest issue in contemporary worship today. By contemporary, I mean what's going on right now. I'm I'm not talking about a style, but um, like when I, we study, um, you know, like in in the New Testament churches, idols were a big problem for some of those churches. Yeah. Um, and hard, especially for, for Gentile believers to not keep going back to worshiping idols. And I so I asked my students, like, what are some idols that we worship today? And um it's it's really striking, you know. just when people come to church they have spent the whole week worshiping something else yeah Like, like some other some other thing that is so important to them money or uh their job or um like he mentions happiness film all these kinds of things yeah um and that it's 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 really important to find uh, music and, and readings and whatnot that move away from that kind of thing and get the emphasis off of that and put it onto Jesus. It's that simple. It's as simple as putting their emphasis on Jesus. Yeah. It, that's not, that's a, It's as simple as that, but there are a lot of songs that don't do that and we have to be really careful. Like you were just describing one, they don't really, put the emphasis on Jesus or the gospel. They're more of a, I feel good about this kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I've always been uh, worried about some of those things, but what's really hard. um, I I, uh, was at the right now conference in Dallas last year um, and our church, our church leadership's going again. Uh, But they had a bunch of different speakers and one was Sky Jatani from the Christian missionary Alliance. Um, but also from the Holy Post podcast with Phil Vischer, who's the creator of Veggie Tales, great podcast. Um, I was listening to him; he's the only non-full-time pastor speaking there, and he talked about how a lot of pastors have the idol of uh, of v- employment, how they're too afraid to give up their salary to say hard stuff. And he was basically this ties to the idol expert. This is tied to um, the complacency disturber as well, but, but, and, and this is not me trying to say that your pastor's bad or my pastor's bad or anybody, um, (laughs) which is me trying not to be a complacency disturber, but, uh, I've, I've been a part of churches where people are so held hostage to the highest giver, so held hostage to public opinion, to, uh, political norms in their area, that they're afraid to actually challenge people, on idols, to challenge people on their, their comfort and their complacency and their faith. They're afraid to challenge people. And he was saying that, just like the underground church in China, just like some of these other churches and places where it's less okay to be a Christian, are called a pastorship, if it's going to stay true in the next 20, 50, whatever years, might need to start being detached from our paycheck. From a five zero three C organization, that uh, that if we're going to pastor freely and listen to God and follow Him freely, not away from a church government necessarily, like a governing board of a denomination, but but if we're going to be able to challenge our congregation's political obsession or our congregation's um, uh, classism, like at the beginning of this chapter, um, that what we're going to have to sacrifice is our paycheck. And it was a really good challenge. He was really being a, a God's mouthpiece and a prophet in that moment in the biblical sense um and kind of exposing the idol of of uh of uh salary for the calling of pastorship. It was very challenging. Um which if you're listening now, you you may already not have that. You may already be an absolutely volunteer worship leader at your church or a part-time worship leader at your church that um, honestly the, the part-time salary or the part-time hours really aren't uh, keeping you afloat more than they're just a gift for you serving. And and if so, you may have a little more room to do this. I'm not trying to tell you to blow up your church, but um, no, I'm definitely not telling you to blow up your church. But. Uh, but just be open and keep your eyes open and be in prayer and listen and watch. And uh, if there is leadership above you, talk to them about it, about idols you see and, and things that, that disturb you um, in, a, in a strong faith way. Um, I don't know if that's a, that is definitely a super dangerous thing to say. So don't go crazy. And rule number one in Danelle's degree, don't get fired. Rule Um, number one. Uh, Anyway, so there are... uh,
0: If I could explain that, that was to say, don't learn all this information and then go home and try it all at once at your church because that doesn't do anybody any good. You have to be discerning and careful and culturally relevant and all kinds of things. So that's what that
1: means. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in these seven uh, sketches of prophetic worship pastoring, we've talked through most of them um I think the the other pertinent ones we haven't hit are future seer um where you're able to bring in God's voice about judgment at the end God's voice about what's really important what really matters at the end um that's number three
0: well my congregation'll love that because their their favorite song is i'll fly away so yeah but that's what that I'll just tell them that's what that is that's um I'm being a future seer when so we sing that song. <laughs> I do not like that song because that's their favorite song.
1: So. I don't either. <laughs> I just think it's, uh, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's not my favorite song. Yeah, but
0: I think the idea that he's talking about longing for what is to come, we don't do that yeah. very well. Yeah. In our, uh, we should do that at the table and we should do that in our dismissals. Yeah. We're not very
1: good at it. I think so. there are a few recent songs that have been written. Um, I'm thinking of Living Hope, yeah. uh, Hymn of Heaven. Yeah. they are hymns genre-wise, but they're not uh, old enough to be in a hymnal. Those are the few that do a really good job of holding out for our our final hope, our yep. eternal hope in Jesus.
0: That's true. Before we run out of time, just the, I was very intrigued by the sheep protector. Yeah. Um, because this is what I've been trying to do at this little church with mostly older people in it, is protect the sheep yeah. from um, the outside influences yeah. like that I'm, we, people are going to think we don't like the church growth movement months, Ryan, by the time we're done with this. But, but from the outside seeker driven, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of Illinois where Willow Creek had a great has had a great influence. Yeah. Um, in the, and so they've actually changed their tune since years ago. But it's more like I still hear, well, we have to do this for the young people. Like we have to sing contemporary songs because that's what the young people like, which is not true, but it's still the idea or um, we can't sing that song because it's too old or, and, and it's like, who's protecting the entire flock? Yeah. So we have one lady in our church who has um, Alzheimer's and she can't, she doesn't remember much, right? And she's unable to come anymore. But as long as she was coming, I would look back there, and when we were singing the hymns, she was singing every single word of the hymns. Yeah. And i like, I don't want to be the one to take that away from her, because somebody else says, well, it's not contemporary to sing hymns, or that's not the right hip thing to do, or whatever. And I was also intrigued by uh, his his um, emphasis on ethnic minorities and handicapped. Yeah. Um, do we know the entirety of who we are and we, are we being hospitable everybody not just a certain group and I just I like I was just I liked the term sheep protector somebody's yeah. got to protect all the sheep not just yeah. the ones that we want to focus in on so I really liked that
1: yeah I what it really reminded me of is is um how the church should be looking like Jesus, and we can say that a lot and mean a lot of things by it. But what I mean when I say that is like, does our church um look out for all ethnicities, all races? Does our church look out for the weak, the oppressed, the sick, the broken, the poor? Right. Um, the people Jesus emphasized and spent a lot of time with, yeah. Um, yeah, do we do we have room for the homeless in our services? because if we don't, we wouldn't have had room for Jesus during his ministry, in our services, yeah. and um, that kind of. If you're wondering who's welcome in, at church, who's who's acceptable to come to worship, just look at Revelation seven. People from every tribe, nation, uh, tongue, ethnicity, um, worshiping around the throne.
0: Well, as, as in the end, I think one of the practical things that maybe didn't get said. In this chapter, from my perspective, is how do you emphasize justice in worship liturgically? And one of one of the ways is to bring those in need of justice to the forefront in our prayers, yeah. in our uh, responsive readings. So so for example, when the when Russia first invaded Ukraine, we prayed about that for a couple of weeks. Now it is forgotten. But the people yeah. of Ukraine and Russia are still suffering. So we don't, you know, we are, we are very insulated and isolated in America. So we don't, we don't pray about or even bring to the forefront those in need of justice in our world. And just to have those in our liturgy is a huge step towards people being uh, justice carriers in the world because we stay too close to our own little group, I think. And that's where uh, God's justice has to be bigger than just our little world. So,
1: Yeah. Um, I <laughs> I wish we had more time so we could talk about what we were talking about a little bit earlier about how uh, high church settings talk about and worship through the gospel differently than um, evangelical yeah. church settings. I would have loved to talk about that, but we are, out of time. Well, um, some
0: other time.
1: Some other time. Part two next week. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I love that this book does is uh, end with a prayer for every chapter, as all these chapters mm-hmm. are kind of different hats that worship pastors wear. Yep. Um, and so as we close out our time today, I just want to uh, pray this prayer um, for us two right here and, and uh, you wherever you are whenever you listen to this. Oh, justice bearer, Jesus Christ. Make your righteousness the theme of our song and the fragrance of our worship until the day when you make all things new. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us, Danelle.
0: My pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Respond Worship Podcast. Again, this is a podcast coming out of the Respond Worship Retreat, which is coming up in the next month or so, um, November 11th and 12th. So if you have not signed up, if you have not registered, uh, I would really encourage you to do that right now at respondworship.org or at maranathabiblecamp.org where the camp uh, is the camp that's hosting us. Um, it may take you a few minutes to, uh, create an account if you haven't been to our retreat before on the Maranatha Bible Camp website. So, uh, just make sure you schedule yourself enough time to do that. You have a few minutes to do that. Um, it's not too expensive. We'd love to see you out there. It's such a huge blessing. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Respond Worship Podcast, which should be coming out in a month or so or more if I... (laughs) don't upload another one. So sorry about that. Anyway, uh, see you next time.